Colossians chapter 1, and our text is going to be verses 15 through 20, although we'll talk about some of what's around it to put it into context. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, and speaking of Jesus, Paul says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may, might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. This morning, in our study in Revelation 3, we talked about those three churches that were in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor, Colossae and Heropolis and Laodicea. And just as a short break from John's letters, because VBS is starting, and uh, what I want to do is just sort of, with this morning's study, pull on a couple of threads that were left there, we can, we can make some inferences from Scripture about how those three churches started. As best we can tell, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys never took him directly into the Lycus Valley. However, Paul remained in nearby Ephesus, about 120 miles away, for several years. And Acts 19 verse 10 says that during that time, all they that dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the Ephesus church, as it was being guided by Paul, was sending missionaries out of their city on their own. And we actually know the name of one of those men that was sent out. His name is Epaphras. You can see up in verse 7, Epaphras had been the minister of the gospel to Colossae and probably to all three of those cities in the Lycus Valley. And so as we pick up our text here in Colossians, years have passed since the gospel mission of, of Paul was, was spreading the gospel throughout Asia Minor. Paul is now at this point, he is arrested. He is imprisoned in Rome. Epaphras had left the Lycus Valley and had personally traveled to the huge metropolis of Rome, seeking out the place of Paul's imprisonment. The first 14 verses of the chapter tell us how Paul rejoiced in seeing him, but how especially he rejoiced in hearing the news of the church's faithfulness. For example, in verse 4, Paul says he's thankful since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all saints. Now, just kind of as a side note, pulling, pulling on another string, hopefully not making everything unravel in the process, it seems very likely to me 
that when Epaphras got to Rome, somewhere in Rome, he encountered a familiar face from back home, a man named Onesimus, a servant from Colossae who had stolen property and run away from a Christian man who lived in Colossae named Philemon. I say that because the only other time that Epaphras is mentioned in the New Testament is Paul's personal letter to Philemon, who lived in Colossae, addressing that situation. Now, if you can picture, as Paul's imprisoned, they have this joyful reunion of the imprisoned apostle and his fellow Christian minister. It would have included a warm greeting, but it also didn't take long for Epaphras to warn Paul of a disturbing new trend in these churches in the Lycus Valley. False teachers had promoted error about who Christ is. They said Jesus was nothing more than one of many angels. They preached that Jesus is very important, perhaps even the most important of God's created beings. But ultimately, this teaching denied both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. These false teachers believed that God did not create the world because physical matter is evil and God would not create evil. And surely, because matter is evil, they argued that God would not come in, uh, in flesh. He would not manifest himself physically in bodily form. They believed that Jesus was not the unique son of God, but rather one of many intermediaries between God and man. The church at Colossae, though they loved Jesus, they also found themselves at a difficult crossroads of their faith because a watered-down, generic version of Jesus does not inspire love from anyone. You can't trust your eternal life to a created being who ranks as just one of many angels. And so our text, verses 15 through 20, begins sort of the the body of this letter. He's greeted the saints, he's thanked God for the church, he's prayed for them, and now Paul has two options in addressing this error. He can shout down the error by criticizing it and showing its falsehoods, which seems to be the main way that the apostle John has done something similar in his letters. But Paul chooses the second option, which is to to correct the error by making just a positive declaration of truth. So as the apostle here is imprisoned at Rome, he begins to dictate this letter, a declaration about Jesus Christ. And he does so in words that are as beautifully written as they are theologically deep. This passage, along with uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, those two passages seem to be a kind of hymn that was sung in the early church as a proclamation of who Jesus is. Those are excellent passages to memorize if you have that opportunity. So the text today considers for us who Jesus really is. Not just who you think he is, but who he really is. He is everything you need because he is he's everything. He is 
Verse 15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So as Paul begins this statement with a a proclamation of truth, he he gives us a truth that I, I think all of us would agree on. God is invisible. At least I hope you agree. If you think that you have seen God, literally, we had to have a whole different conversation. But John 4 Verse 24 says God is spirit. 1 Timothy 1.17 calls him the immortal, invisible, only wise God. John 1.18 says no man has seen God at any time. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Yet Paul says that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That word image means the the representation or the manifestation of a thing. We actually get our English word icon from the Greek word that Paul uses here. We use that word icon to mean it's symbolic of something. Now we have to be careful because we could end up getting the wrong idea. I think sometimes we think just deeply enough and, and stop without really getting to the bottom of it. So, As an example, we think of this word icon in our meaning, we think of just something symbolic. Like, you know, if if you're married, you have a wedding ring and that wedding ring is an icon. It is a symbol. It's a symbol of my marriage. I don't take it off because I don't want to lose that symbol. I'm also careful not to end up in the doghouse with somebody sitting up front, right? That's another good reason not to take it off. And yet, This ring just represents my marriage, right? It's not actually my marriage. I think you agree. I can take my wedding ring off, set it on the pulpit, walk away, and I am not any less married in the process. So while pointing out that Jesus is the icon of God, that helps, but our modern language doesn't really fully convey the depth of Paul's intent. Jesus is not just a symbol of God, Jesus is God. That's why our our concept of images or icons is so limiting. And because of that, God said in the Ten Commandments, don't make any carved, any graven image of God. No image that we create could ever encompass the fullness of what it is to be God because Jesus is the fullness of what it is to be God. I mentioned John 1.18 already. It says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has declared him. I love the little word declared in that verse because it's the word we use in English sometimes about preaching. If you've ever heard the word exegesis or exegetical preaching, it's the idea of, you, you bring something out. It's the kind of preaching that's designed to take the text and bring the meaning that's in the text out faithfully and not impose our own preconceived notions on it. Well, John uses that word to describe that no man has seen God at any time. It is the work of Jesus to do the exegesis. Jesus is the one who brings out, declares God to mankind. If you want to know what God is all about, you have to look to Jesus. 
But of course, just like with preaching, we don't want to bring preconceived notions. Knowing God through Jesus requires us to abandon all our preconceived notions about what it is we'll find. At the end of his earthly ministry, before his arrest, Jesus is in the upper room teaching his disciples, and in John 14, he delivers them some great promises of God. In John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it was not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And yet one of the disciples that were sitting there listening to that, a man named Philip, pipes up a few verses later with a request that I think he makes out of frustration. Philip looks at Jesus and says, look, show us the Father and that will suffice us. I think what what Philip meant was, well, you keep talking about the Father, you keep talking about God, why don't you just show him to us? Let us see him and that will be enough. Remember Jesus' response to Philip? Have you not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is more than just a, a representation of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And I can assure you that in your life, You'll never see the Father for who he is until you see Jesus for who Jesus is. And yet, then by seeing Jesus, you've seen God. By coming to him, you've come to God. By loving Jesus, you've loved God. Glorifying Jesus is glorifying God. Jesus is God, and you will only find peace with God through finding peace with Jesus. Not only that, verse 15 calls him the firstborn of every creature. He is the firstborn of all creation. This is one of those dots I hoped we would connect to this morning's text and dive into this just a little more. What do the apostles mean when they say things like this? What did it mean in our text in Revelation 3.14 when John recorded Jesus' claim to be the beginning of the creation of God? Or what's Paul mean here when he says about Jesus, he's the firstborn of every creature? It is not their intent, as some would suggest, to say that Jesus is the very first created being. Frankly, that would make nonsense out of this text, as we'll see in a moment. Now, it is true that Jesus being God from eternity past predates any individual part of the creation. And yet John this morning and Paul now are both saying more than that. In verses 16 and 17, when we get there, Paul says that Jesus is the very creator God himself. After all, Paul's purpose in writing this was to dispel such nonsense which had been brought into the church at Colossae. So instead, this firstborn of all creation is speaking about rank, not about chronological order. That word firstborn is frequently translated as heir or owner. 
In ancient times, it meant the one who is ranking, the one who is supreme. And we know this happened throughout scripture. You know, Jacob was not the firstborn, but he was the heir. It's, it's strongly supported by what's said about King David. In, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God says of King David, I will make him my firstborn higher than all the kings of the earth. Was David the firstborn of his brothers? Well, no, he was the youngest of eight brothers. David wasn't even the first king, but David was, in the eyes of God, the most exalted king of the earth. The term firstborn there is a title of honor, of position. It's not a statement about chronological order. We'll see in a moment, Paul does talk about chronological order when he gets down at verse 17. He says of Jesus that he is before all things. And so there's nothing before Jesus. But here, Paul isn't saying where Jesus fits in the order of time if you put things on a timeline. He's talking about where Jesus fits in the order of authority. There is no higher authority than Jesus. Paul, having, having said that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, now goes on to say that Jesus is also the highest honor and authority in all the universe. He is the heir. He is the head of all. He is Jesus, the son, who being the express image of God is the focal point of all divine favor. That's why the writer of Hebrews calls him the heir of all things. He's preeminent over all things because he's the creator. In verse 16, he says, for by him were all things created. Just in case you miss what it meant for him to be firstborn in verse 15, Paul rejects the notion that Jesus was merely created first by saying that Jesus is the creator of all things. He cannot be both the creator and part of the creation. That's nonsense. And so this will also tell us that creation is not a, a, a product of random processes brought on by billions of years. Evolution is nothing more than the preposterous invention of atheists. There's no mystical mother nature who rules the tides and the weather. There is one God and one creator over all things, and that is Jesus. And so it is Jesus, the creator, who could cause in front of Moses a, a bush to burn and not be consumed. It's, it's Jesus, the creator, who could split the Red Sea and hold back the walls of water. Jesus, the creator, could shout into a storm, peace, be still, literally, be silent, be muzzled. Can you imagine looking into a thunderstorm and telling it, zip it? Jesus did and it obeyed. The wind and the waves obeyed his voice because that is the voice that spoke them into existence to begin with. Such is the detail of Jesus' hold and creation 
that one day a seed fell into the ground and Jesus nurtured that seed. He did good by it. He gave it rain and fruitful seasons. He protected it from destruction. He oversaw its growth until the day it was a strong tree and it was cut down and formed into the cross on which the very creator and sustainer of its life would be crucified. Every single thing that you see in the physical world was created by the word of Jesus. But there's more than that. Not only was the physical world created by Jesus, Paul says there is an entire span of a spiritual world out there that was made by him. There is an unseen world of spirit beings that were created by Jesus. Look at verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. It is amusing how commentaries stumble all over themselves trying to explain those four things on that list in verse 16. And in all honesty, I would do the same thing if I felt like I had to explain them. Do I have to explain them to you this morning? Because I don't know that I'm capable of it. It's one of those places in scripture where I think we can freely admit that we can't comprehend the exact meaning in every detail. It's not just difficult to understand, it's difficult to to translate. For the example, the NIV translates these words thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. The NIV translates them as whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. It's been suggested that these four words all relate to some sort of different angelic beings or different rank among angelic beings. Maybe so. It would make sense in the context. I can't say with certainty. But look at verse 16 again. We, we won't miss what Paul is saying with certainty. Paul is saying all things were made by Jesus, whether it's stuff that you can see or stuff you can't see, whether it's things in the earthly realm, that physical world around us, which is visible, or the things in the spiritual realm, the invisible world around us, Jesus made everything. I said a moment ago that phrase firstborn of all creation is sometimes used to say Jesus was created like he's the very first and bestest angel. That makes nonsense of the text as a whole. Jesus is not merely an angel, nor is he the greatest of angels. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the creator of the angels. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.5, which Under which of the angels did God say at any time, you're my beloved son, this day I have begotten you. The angels minister at the authority of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Satan and all his demons can only work under the authority of what Jesus allows them to do. While it's true that Satan is our great enemy, he's the accuser of the saints, We don't need to fear that he has some kind of undue authority over us. Even in all their rebellion against God, they were created by Jesus and even today answer to him as their master. 
And so the angels that led Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were made by the hand of Jesus. The angels that surround the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they were made by Jesus. They were given their wings and their song by the very one who they sing about. Satan is made by Jesus and found, we can read in Job, found he could not touch Job's life unless he had permission to do it. In, in Matthew 8, there is a man who is possessed by many demons and he, he's brought by those beings and, and kneels in front of Jesus because those demons recognized that their creator could be their destroyer. And they begged Jesus to not destroy them. But they could not even go and possess a bunch of pigs unless Jesus gave them the authority and allowed them to do it. As hard as it is for us to fathom creation, when we start to look at the the planets and the stars and we send out rovers and telescopes into space to try to get a better picture of them, it's almost unfathomable. I would encourage you to just Just Google Hubble telescope pictures. Don't do it right now. Do it later. But look at some of those pictures from the Hubble telescope of the majestic artwork that was created in the heavens by the hand of Jesus. And when you are stunned speechless by the magnitude of that beauty, then remind yourself that that's the easy part of creation for you to understand. That's what we can see. Jesus made what you can see and made things you can't see. He made what's visible and invisible. Not only is he the creator, Paul says he's the very focus of why everything was created. We live in this world full of people who constantly ask why. Like we're a bunch of four-year-olds and we can never really get to the bottom of someone explaining to us why are things the way they are. Well, there is one simple answer to why things are the way they are. Jesus created everything and he created it to suit himself. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. John records the same sort of statement. We'll get into this in Revelation 4, but in Revelation 4.11, those 24 elders fall on their face before Jesus and say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. Now, do you get that, that they are and were created? It's the very pleasure of Jesus which caused everything to be created in the past. That is, he created all things for his own pleasure. But don't miss what those elders were saying was, for your pleasure, all things are and were created. In other words, not only were all things made by Jesus, but they owe their continued existence in the present only to the will of Jesus. Here's how Paul says it in our text in verse 16. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. 
You are here sitting in the pew at this moment because Jesus created you. He created you to bring him glory. And your debt to him is not owed merely to some passing event that transpired a long time ago, which puts you in debt to him, but your continued existence right now is only assured by the pleasure of Jesus to allow you to have that existence. You will not draw your next breath except by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Now, I don't by this mean for you to understand that Jesus could reach in and stop your life whenever he wants to. Although that's true. He's perfectly capable of that. But when we think of it that way, we think of it wrong because the full truth is it does not take the active work of Jesus reaching in to stop your life. It takes the active work of Jesus every moment to sustain the life that you have. He is not just capable of stopping your heart from beating in your chest. It is the pleasure of Jesus at this very moment that is the pacemaker that is making your heart beat. There's a view of God by some in Christianity. It can best be described as as the watchmaker God idea. That is that God made, made the world and he set up some scientific laws and it's like he wound it up and then he sits back and just watches it go, watches it all unfold. That is simply not what the Bible teaches. Jesus, the very creator of the universe, came into the world he made and interacted with it. He still interacts with it. The word consist at the end of verse 17, where it says, by him all things consist. That word consist in Greek literally means hold together. Even though we can't seem to hold our own lives together, Jesus holds the whole universe together. The reason that you have made it this far in your life is because Jesus has held that together how foolish it is of the world to treat Jesus the way that we do, that that we have this utterly ridiculous small idea about who Jesus is. Because there in the hands of Jesus at this very moment is your life and your breath and your money and your family and your job and your health and your marriage and your church and he is the one who holds all of those pieces together in his loving hands, even as so many people in there squirm and complain, saying, I want nothing to do with him. Well, you better hope that he continues to want something to do with you. Paul says in verse 18 that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Of all of the metaphors for the church in the New Testament. The church being a body is the one that is most frequently used. The interesting thing to me, though, is that usually when the church is spoken of as a body, the emphasis is on the relation of the members of a church to one another, how it functions together. So, you know, the same Apostle Paul, for example, wrote to the church at Corinth and says in 1 Corinthians 12, the church is a body and all the members are parts of the body. 
And so every member is vital and the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Members can't just decide another member is unimportant and they don't need it. He also says, if the foot says, I'm not of the body, is it not of the body? In other words, you can't just make a decision saying, well, I'm not part of that anymore. The way the metaphor for the church being a body is often used is to explain that vital connection of church members to each other. That's not exactly the way it's being used here, though. To the church at Colossae, Paul sees a different problem. They seemed united well enough, but they weren't united together in complete truth. They were, they were threatened to stray away from their awe of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so here, Paul uses that metaphor of the church being a body not to stress the relation of every member to each other, but the importance of every member being connected to the head of the body, which is Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. It's the head of the body that gives life and movement and purpose to all of the other parts. There's an old preacher named Robert Shaw who wrote that a, a body without a head has no life and a body with more than one head is just a monster. I'm afraid some churches have tried creating monsters of themselves by having someone in authority other than Jesus. The pastors of an assembly are not the heads of the assembly. Jesus is the head. Deacons are servants, but they're not the head. Committees and boards may or may not be practical, but they're never going to be the head. And your own thought and your own motives and your own feelings and your preconceived notions and even, even your well-intentioned motives are never going to be the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. No church is ever going to have revival without an awestruck appreciation of Jesus, who is the head of the church. If Jesus is not supreme in a church, then there really is no church. Jesus must be supreme over our church. We must bow to his authority. Verse 18 says he's the head of the body of the church who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Let me just point out that phrase, the firstborn from the dead, that also clarifies any question we would have about verse 15. Obviously, this is not saying that Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead. If you're biblically literate at all, you understand in chronological order, Jesus was not the first person to rise from the dead. Elijah and Elisha both raised children from the dead. One, one man in the Old Testament rose from the dead when they tried to bury him on Elisha's bones. Jesus in his ministry raised Jairus' daughter and the widow's son and Lazarus all from the dead. All of those things happened before Jesus' resurrection. So that word firstborn is not meant to tell us that this is the order that things happened in. It's to talk about authority, not chronology. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is authoritative. It is above. It is beyond any others because all others rose to die again. And Jesus says, I am the one who was dead, but now am alive forevermore. 
At the end of verse 18, Paul explains what everything is, what all of this is meant to point to. There's a purpose starting from his explanation of Jesus being the visible image of the invisible God all the way through verse 18 where he's the head of the church. Here's the point at the end of verse 18. That in all things, he might have preeminence. Preeminence simply means to be first or to hold first place. Jesus is not going to take second place. He demands first place. He is first place in everything. He's the first place in creation because he's the creator. He's the first place in the church because he's the head of the church. He's the first place in your life because he's what holds your life together. He takes second place in nothing. The whole point Paul's making is that Jesus is preeminent because he is God himself. And it never at any point did he become something less than God, even when he was born in the flesh. Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This strikes to the very heart of the problem that Epaphras had described to Paul. Those false teachers entered into the Lycus Valley and started teaching, well, God doesn't. God didn't create the physical world. All physical things are evil. Jesus didn't have a literal body. God wouldn't come and be in a literal body. Jesus was probably just a spiritual messenger created by God in order to communicate with us. (laughs) Paul says, no, no. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus is the creator. He is not a messenger from God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Your idea about a physical world and spiritual world is nuts because not only has he made the spiritual world, all the things you can't see, he also made the physical world of all the things that you can see. And he entered into that world himself Physically, never at any moment did he stop being anything other than completely God. Paul is going to go on after our text to stress this physical nature of Jesus. We'll see in verse 20 that he's made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus had real blood. In verse 22, he talks about being reconciled to God in the body of his flesh. And to know God, you have to know Jesus, the Son of God, because it pleased the Father that in Jesus should all fullness dwell, Paul says. He uses that same phrase again in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead. The totality of what it means to be God is concentrated into the physical body of, the, of God the Son, Jesus Christ. In the body of Jesus, there abides everything there is to being God. He did not stop being God at some point in order to be born into humanity. He remained fully God and fully human at the same time. Jesus Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. A real body, one that he says in verse 20, shed real blood on the cross. 
And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, there is peace to be found through the blood of Jesus, God's son, shed on the cross for sinners. This peace is not, you know, a sense of contentment and and happiness and well-being. The peace that Paul's talking about here is the opposite of war. Sinners are at war against God. We are the enemy of God because we have rebelled against him. But the work of Jesus Christ reconciles rebels to God. To reconcile means that, that something was broken apart and now it's been, it's been mended back together. Literally, it means to set something right. Jesus reconciles lost sinners to God. He sets us right to God. Now, I want to be careful because the way Paul has written verse 20 has been misconstrued by some to say that this passage suggests that there is universal salvation for all people, even fallen angels, as Jesus reconciles everything to himself. Let's be careful not to make the passage say more than what it's saying. In that other passage I was talking about in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Paul talks about all things falling to their knees before Jesus. And what he says in Philippians 2, he says, all things will bow before Jesus, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. But look, is that how Paul words it here? When you look at verse 20, where are reconciled things to Jesus that have been reconciled through his blood? They are things in earth or things in heaven. I think that speaks of saints on earth who've believed in Jesus and saints who have died and gone to heaven believing in Jesus. But it doesn't mean everybody. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ find peace through the blood of his cross. But even saying that, there is a sense in which Jesus sets all things right. Not that every person is saved, but there is going to be a day when Jesus returns in judgment of the nations and every single knee will bow to him. You will bow to him. Some will bow to him saved by faith in his blood. Some will bow to him lost because they have continued to reject and rebel against him. But everyone's going to bow to him. And that is going to be a great day of reckoning when Jesus sets all things right. And everything is going to submit to the will of God so that in all things, he might have the preeminence. That word might doesn't mean might like maybe. (laughs) It means might like will with certainty have preeminence. We think, or at least many people hope, that Jesus will settle for something less, but he will not. Some folks think they can live without Jesus, but he is the very creator and sustainer of their life. Some folks think that they can just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus into their life you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up and I'm going to sit in the pews and I'm going to listen to a guy drone on for a while. That's going to fill my religious requirements. That's going to make God happy. 
not if Jesus ain't first place in your life. Some folks think they can make Jesus prominent in their lives. But he insists on being preeminent. Not just Jesus you can show off sometimes, but Jesus who's first place in everything. If you're willing to settle for a prominent Jesus, you are in big trouble. Jesus will not settle for that. He demands to be preeminent. He's preeminent in creation because he is the creator. He is preeminent in his church because he's the head of the church. He is preeminent in your life because he's the one who sustains your life, holding all of it together. Jesus demands that he is the preeminent focal point of your existence. You might think that Jesus has nothing for you. I assure you, you've got nothing without him.